Welcome to Questions We're Afraid to Ask. Welcome back, everybody. We are here with more questions. Uh, We're going to talk to John Shea today uh, about more again where did we come from and and what's going on and and i want to talk to you about survival archaeology i'm i i almost finished your book i i have like three chapters left i skipped and read the last chapter to the end it's spectacular i'm fast i have a million questions um it's it's very good so how i want to start with how did you get into survival archaeology and tell me a little bit about what that means exactly well, how I got into it was um, my parents, um, I was a handful when I was a little kid. My parents sent me to live with my grandfather in the northernmost part of Maine, up in Rostock County. And my grandmother was um, a person of the land. She knew the, 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 the animals, she knew the plants, and she inculcated me an interest and, and a knowledge about natural history. And, you know, as I, you know, years and years passed, I went through, you know, many different things. I would be a Coast Guard officer, I would be a cartoonist, this, uh, or, you know, Olympic wrestler and all this kind of stuff. Eventually, when I settled on archaeology, I realized that um, what archaeologists were, were saying about earlier humans wasn't very much informed by, by you know, survival skills, by just, you know, or bushcraft. But, you know, mm-hmm. they say, I asked, well, how, well how, did, how, did, how did they make fire? And, well, they made it somehow. It's like, yeah, okay, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this, you know, if you don't know how to make fire, you die, right? Or, well, well, how do they how do they find food? You know, well, okay, well, you know, grandmother would say, well, if you eat this, you'll be satisfied and happy. If you eat this, you'll see your ancestors. <laughs> so, so I, I brought this to the, to the table, and, and and for a long time, my, my, I was interested in stone tools. And my my colleagues said, "Well, this stone tool indicates this person made it, or this other person made it." I said, "Look, I mean, come on, guys, I can make any stone tool I can see. So mm-hmm. I, I can make a stone tool that like Homo erectus made. That doesn't make me Homo erectus." So right. So I, I began questioning, and I thought, you know, rather than trying to figure out. Who made the tools, which we'll never be able to, to answer that question, you need a time machine. Yeah. yeah. To answer, how did you make the tools? You just need to do some experiments, look at the, you know, the fracture mechanics, and you can, you can test hypotheses about that straightforwardly. So that's kind of where it came from, is, is that I, I realized we're you know, a whole set of questions to which uh, um, archaeologists have been ex- expending their efforts for about a century or so, who made which tools, which we couldn't ever possibly prove wrong. Where mm-hmm. we've been neglecting questions about how do they make fire, how do they make shelter, how do they you know, do first aid and these kinds of things, which are absolutely crucial to human survival. And right. it's not that we can't know these things; we just don't ask the questions. I asked my professor, you know, Professor Gable, how do they make fire? Well, you know, we don't know. <laughs> That's not good enough. If if we're asking questions like you know, how do they, how do they domesticate dogs or, or or wheat or cattle, mm-hmm. we wouldn't. You know, well, they did somehow. That that's not an acceptable answer. Absolutely. So, as I was reading through this, I, what I could there's a couple things that stuck out to me. One, you called out how we're missing a lot of data just because of sea level rise and changes, oh, yeah. and 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 not you know as far as the so so it's not migration. 
You think it's dispersal? That's yes. okay. And just completely, like there's no migration at, at all, really. It's all you think it's all dispersal before agriculture. Yes, it's all dispersal. Okay. You know, if, okay. if you drop me on, on, on an island, you know, somewhere, yeah, you're the first, the, the first thing I would do is I would head to the coast and look for where fresh water meets, meets salt water, an estuary, because that's where all the food is. And right, the, the, the difficulty is, you know, you know when prehistoric humans moved around they knew that too these guys weren't stupid right now, they, they, they look at the landscapes well let's go up to the mountains that's where the glaciers are and they say no you're, you're gonna die <laughs> <laughs> or you know or, let's let's go play with the cave bears and no it's kind of stupid so they would look in a landscape objectively like you would or i would and say mm -hmm. all right where can we get the most food without having to move around and burn up calories and these are the lower ends of river valleys and estuaries, where fresh water meets salt water, this right. is where all the food is. The more humanly accessible calories in those kinds of environments and anywhere else on the landscape. The trouble is, those ice age coastlines, estuaries, and lower river valleys—they're under 150 meters of water right now. Right. <laughs> so, you know, we can get to them. It's just not going to be easy. Uh, 150 meters is—you can't do that in scuba gear. That's that's robot stuff. Now. Oh, uh, okay. You, okay. you you can do lower, you know, uh, excuse me, um, higher elevations. And colleagues, especially the guys from Gibraltar, the, from mm -hmm. people from the you know, Museum of Gibraltar and, and the University of Gibraltar, these guys are all scuba trained. They go down there off the coast of Gibraltar, and there's stone tools and there's you know archaeological evidence around fossil springs. You know, it's, prehistoric people weren't stupid. They they knew where the mm -hmm. food was. It's just we it's difficult for us to get at those those landscapes. But we can do it. If we can put if we can put, you know, not not just one man but but a dozen or so astronauts on the moon, we mm -hmm. can put an archaeologist on the sea floor under hundred fifty meters down or give him a robot and and do that. We we can get to the Titanic, we can get to you know hundred fifty yes. meters. Absolutely. It's it's fascinating the way you're you're talking about some of this stuff because the things you're describing <clears throat> are the same things that we talk about in like our basic survival class and yeah. our our basic bushcraft stuff because that's that's a hobby of mine. <clears throat> and uh, if you watch any of like the serious people like the the Cody Lundines who didn't do it yep. for this um, guy, <laughs> you know he he didn't really do it. He wanted to teach. He didn't want to do the the you know the kind of Hollywood stuff. Or yeah. my favorite one is Les Stroud because he, he went out there and filmed it all and did a lot of that himself. And yeah. they talk about all this practical stuff. Um, a lot of these basic philosophies haven't changed. They're exactly the same now as they would have been, yeah. you know, 50, 60,000 years ago. And one of the, my favorite examples is um, like the basic stuff you should put in a quote unquote survival kit. Yeah. Isn't that different in a book right now as what we got off, uh, I think it's pronounced Otzi the Iceman that oh, yeah. came out of, you know, if you look at, now granted it's different materials, but he's carrying yeah. the same kind of stuff, right? Yep. Something to make fire, tinder, uh, he had like four different cutting tools on him. He even had a yep. little, you know, hand drill, a bone awl, and yeah. it's just, it's it it's fascinating. It's a 10-piece yeah. emergency kit, at least. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, people, prehistoric people like modern people, you know, if you're, you're going to be in a dangerous environment, you have to think. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's basic. It's, it's basic six survival problems. First aid, shelter, water, food, um, communications, and transportation. Or, you know, uh, um, 
you know, the inspiration for survival archaeology was Cody London. I was doing okay. his, his desert drifter survival class. And, you know, I was, I was the professor, you know, I was the oldest guy. I think I was probably the oldest guy in the, in the class. And, you know, I, 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 I was an anthropologist and we were sitting around at campfires and this kind of thing. And said, what do you do? I'm CEO for software. I'm a, you know, for, for, former force recon Marine. You know, I'm a, a kid who runs a, a gold mine, this kind of thing. And I said, what do you do? You know, I, I'm a professor of anthropology. You know, you know the, the kids, the, the people in the class would ask me, how do prehistoric people make fire? How do people's prehistoric people ever figure out how to make leather? How do prehistoric people ever figure out how to make cordage? You know, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I kept saying, you know, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. And finally, Cody popped up and said, how is it that you people don't know this stuff? And I, it was one of the epiphanies. I thought, you know, we just, we just, we're asking the wrong questions. Mm-hmm. We, 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 don't, we don't have the answers because we don't ask the questions. Now, yeah. you know, all, for all this time, you know, people say, oh, Jesus, Neanderthals, excuse me, Neanderthals, oh, they couldn't make fire. Oh, how did they survive? It's like, bitch, please. <laughs> they lived in, <laughs> in Northern Europe during the Ice Age. They had a way to make fire. And so, no. oh, well, did they do this or did that? And finally, about two years ago, colleagues looked at these these stone tools, about these things called hand axes. They're about like what size and shape of your hand. Mm-hmm. And they found scratches on them very similar to the kind of scratches that people make using flint and steel or you know, flint hand axes, or, or, or you know, in this case, not steel, but marcasite, you know, an iron rich mm-hmm. mineral. And, and oh my goodness, there's all, you know, there's percussion that creates sparks. Yeah, because they weren't stupid, you know? <laughs> so you know, we, 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 under, we, we, don't, we underestimate our ancestors' skills mm-hmm. because we don't ask the questions. And I just thought, you know, okay, um, asking the questions nobody asks, that's kind of my niche within this field. You know, they, they say, I got them, my hand up in meetings. I was like, oh, he's just gone. Can I, can I jump that question? <laughs> I, it's fun. You know, it, it pulls people into the, 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 the human origins research who aren't usually engaged in this. You know, mm-hmm. all these guys, you know, they, they, they study stone tools. They can't make them. They don't use them, this kind of stuff. And you talk to survival guys, it's like, no, really? Stone tools? I use one for like a year, and and you know my, my archaeology colleagues they, they think these guys are making stone tools every fifteen seconds. So I think it's a new perspective, and and I I hope it inspires new questions. It 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 is so in, so I I got lost a little bit in the <clears throat> talking about the cores, the the prismatic cores and the half oh, cores, yeah. and so I, I'm assuming that was just sort of the watching the evolution of the complexity as they uh, over time is that what what you were seeing they're, they're getting right. more complicated here's the deal with the plate the, the okay. blade course when humans arrived in europe forty-five thousand years ago they brought with them these cores these, okay. these you know, long narrow things off of which they strike you know long and narrow uh, uh, flakes or blades and so the first archaeologists decided well Blades are indicate modern humans, and and, and blades are, are evidence of intelligence, and, and blades show that these people were were you know modern humans as opposed to archaic humans. Bullshit. Right. Africans are making blades two hundred and fifty thousand years ago. I know because okay. we've dug up their remains, and blades are sitting in the ground in the same level as these early human fossils. So, it it, it it's archaeology got going in Europe, and so you know so. The, the sequence of changes in Europe 
early on became like the standard. People said, well, well, well mm -hmm. you know, Europe is, is the pattern. Excuse me. The pattern of evidence in Europe is a global pattern. That's not true. Mm, right. The, the things that show up 45,000 years ago in Europe show up because Neanderthals became extinct because they froze to death. And then humans showed up and, and, and oh, well, humans are, you know, humans invented these things. Now, they're, they're doing this stuff in Africa a quarter million years ago. You know, and to that point, people in Australia, Aboriginal Australians, mm -hmm. they didn't make blades at all. It's like, blades? Bits, please. We <laughs> got other stuff to do, like hunting, you know, rhinoceros sized kangaroos. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, it, 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 some of this is, is, is you know, I'm, I'm a, as an archaeologist, I'm a weird archaeologist. Most people who study Stone Age archaeology, they're either Europeans or they're trained in European universities or by European archaeologists. I was trained by an African archaeologist, Glenn Isaac, and by an Israeli archaeologist, Ofer Bar Yosef. And, you know, they, they, they said to me, you know, this isn't Europe, Ofer would say, you know, this isn't Europe, this is Israel. Or Glenn would say, John, forget about Europe, this is Africa. <laughs> and so, you know, you want to understand how people adapted. You need to understand Africa or Israel or what have you. Mm -hmm. And understand how they adapted to the landscape. It's not, what they did wasn't, they weren't trying to imitate Europeans because they didn't know they existed. They're trying right. to solve basic problems. You know, how do I feed myself and my family? How to make sure my kids have, have you know, enough food and a, an acceptable choice of mates. Yeah, absolutely. You you said something I, I really liked in the in the book. I don't remember where. I think it was around chapter three. That arrows on a map cheapen the hardship. And yes. I I really liked that. That that we're so used to just like they went here and then there's there's this big big pretty arrow that points up into Europe and you're like excellent. That's when it happened and and the way you <laughs> you're like if you really stop and think about it, you're like, well, no, it wasn't. It was a whole bunch of people just really slowly kind of working their way, just like we see with, you know, urban sprawl. Cities just yeah. slowly get bigger and bigger. I'm sure people spread, you know, until you, you your village gets to the size until you hate that guy. And you're like, we're going over there and we're going to start <laughs> another place. And then it, yeah. just, it just keeps going. Arrows on the map. Yeah, that's, that's a problem. I mean, it, 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 it's part of our, you know, we often drag into the priest. Excuse me. We often drag into the prehistoric past things of our common experience. So if you are living in, say, let's say you're living in Dallas. I don't know where you guys are, but let's say you're living in Dallas. And you want to go to, like, you know, Beijing. You jump in a plane, zip, you know, however many <laughs> hours later, you're, you're across the Himalayas, bang, you're in, in Beijing. You know, Akuna Matata, no problem. But, you know, they didn't have 747s back in the Ice Age. If you needed to get from point A to point B... You had to climb mountains. You had to cross rivers. You had to deal with other people. You know this. This you know, arrows on maps make make the the accomplishments of our ancestors cheap. They mm -hmm. they, they, they they make them look easy. When you know crossing rivers, you know, crossing rivers. You know, if you want to cross the Rhine River today, yeah, no shit. You just jump in a boat or take a taxi taxi boat you're across. Or you know, a couple of thousand years ago. You jump in a paddle across a boat. It's no no big worries. It's the Rhine River. You want to cross the Rhine River during the Ice Age. If you were in, in water for more than 30 seconds, you're dead because hypothermia kills in minutes. So you know, arrows, it's a, it's a convention. It's a metaphor. It makes things mm -hmm. look, look simple and easy that were actually very, very difficult. And, you know, in terms of crossing just the Rhine River, crossing the Rhine River costs thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. Or our ancestors.
Yeah. And error cheap in that. I yeah. think people underestimate how hard it is to just move through terrain carrying your stuff. Mm-hmm. And um you know, we, we had a when I first kind of got into all the, the camping stuff and Daniel went with me, we went on a, a camping trip, you know, with modern gear and everything. And it was about a four mile hike in and yep. uh we were stupid. <clears throat> we wore the wrong kind of clothes. It was too hot. And we got to the place that we were going to get, and Daniel was dehydrated. And it wasn't oh. until I got almost three gallons of water into him oh, that sorry. he, you know, that he started kind of like I, he wasn't. It wasn't. Well, it was dangerous, but it never. It didn't because I realized it what was going yeah. on. Um, mm-hmm. But just that small snippet, it feels like if people who studied ancient history and, and archaeology and this had to go do a little bit of practical. <laughs> just backpacking or something like yeah, that, man. maybe they could get a better understanding of how hard this kind of stuff is. Well, we do. You know, I'm, I'm, I haven't gone into the field for the last few years. I'm getting old. I want to spend time with my wife. But, mm-hmm. you know, when I was a younger man, we go into, off into the deserts in Israel, Jordan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, um, Kenya, Tanzania, and these places. And you go out there loaded for bear. You know, mm-hmm. you, you take everything you possibly can, and and you know, um, there's, that puts a lot of technology between you and problems. But ancient people had different kinds of technology mm-hmm. and different kinds of problems. I think you know, the, the comfort with which we go in, in, into go away from other people, um, we tend to project that back in the past. Whereas ancient people. They were always thinking, not not so, not, not oh, everything's great, this kind of thing. They're thinking. What could go wrong? You know, if grandfather gets bitten by a, a, a snake, if grandmother gets eaten by a crocodile, mm-hmm. you just you just lost, you know, grandfather, grandmother, 40, 50 years apiece of accumulated knowledge. You know, grandmother mm-hmm. might have, you know, you lose grandmother, she may be the last person who knows how to deal with a breech birth. Grandfather, mm-hmm. grandfather, he knows how you deal with a once in a century drought. So, you know, nowadays we have, you know, books and guides and this kind of stuff to help us with these kinds of things. Our ancestors had different ways of preserving that information. And, and, and basically, it was, you know, you keep everybody alive. You, you can't you can't afford to, to put grandmother or grandfather out on the ice floor for the polar bears. You know, that's, that's bullshit. You know, it's, a, it's a myth. You know, so no. I, you know I think studying how people survive today you know who lives who dies and why can give us inspiration for it. they're asking different kinds of questions about the past i mean mm-hmm. our ancestors were badasses really <laughs> think about it you know they went from being an endangered african primate one of my many hominid species running around africa a quarter million years ago to a global diaspora in which we're really equivalent of geological force you know we 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 do something a little bit different and the geology of the planet changes. There's no other species that does that. I mean, chimps, chimps throw poop at each other, big deal. You know, poop has been thrown. It doesn't change the environment of Africa. Humans mm-hmm. decide, let's make iron. That really changes the geography of Africa. Because mm-hmm. you, you want to make iron, you need charcoal. You need charcoal, you need trees. Trees, trees are gone. You get, you know, you turn forests into, into grasslands. Mm. So, you talked about um, the is it five 
precision grasping, oh, yeah. bipedalism, uh, predictive hallucinations, language with quantal speech, and, and hypersociality. Okay. Now, those those are the ones that you said that – oh, I'm going to forget what it is. It's mm. not – the one before Homo sapien is – Homo hypergensis. Thank you. And you, so you were saying that, that they have the same – those same features as well. Yes. Homo sapien just utilizes them better, essentially. It, 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 it's we, – well, okay. Let's take them one by one. Okay. Um, Predictive hallucination means taking information, partial information, and being able to make an accurate prediction about what will happen. Right. So making stone tools. You hit a rock with another rock. The fracture propagates one way or another. That's predictive hallucination. I mean, okay. a more, more prosaic one would be, you know, you and I, we walk outside, we look at the, at, at the sky, we see cirrus clouds, and cirrus clouds mean there's, there's, there's rain coming. Or right. We look, okay. we, you know, we look at the stock market and say, oh, sell, buy, whatever. Okay, that's okay. predictive hallucination. Um, powerful precision grasping. Um, we can do this because we have uh, these oddly shaped hands. Uh, apes have you know, you know, long fingers but small thumbs. So if you when, when you tie your shoes in the morning, you're engaging in powerful precision grasping. Okay. Okay. Um, apes have powerful precision grasping too. They just don't use it to do things like tie knots or or or, or, or you know make shoes or sew things. They use it to. Mm -hmm. you know, make sticks and pick pick termites out of mouths. Um, but endurance bipedalism. Now, uh, have, have either you, you gentlemen run run along a foot race? Yeah, like years ago, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, you know, I have a friend uh, and a colleague at, at Harvard, Daniel Lieberman. Um, Dan runs marathons barefoot. And mm. he, ran, he ran a marathon race against horses. It was a man versus horse race in Prescott, Arizona. And he won. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, humans are really good. You know, if, if, you know, if, you, if, if, if a human and a chimpanzee were tethered together running a marathon, the chimpanzee would be in, in deep, deep doo-doo after a couple of kilometers. The human, human would run a marathon. You know, you see these guys stumble across the, the end of the Boston Marathon. Mm -hmm. No problem. I mean, you know, they just keep, you know, walking. So we're really good at walking a long, long time. And, and part of that is also swimming. We mm -hmm. swim really well. Apes, you put throw an ape in the water, apes drown. They can dog paddle a little bit, but but we, we can swim for, for miles. What's that, that lady? I forgot her name. She swam from Florida to Cuba. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. There are rivers in Africa that are only a couple hundred meters across that have divided chimpanzee populations for hundreds of thousands of years. Those same rivers are teeming with little African kids swimming with boats and with their parents, you know, keeping close lookout against crocodiles. So mm -hmm. but endurance bipedalism allows us to move in ways that other primates don't. Okay. So quantal speech, that's the other one. Um, mm -hmm. I could talk to you without using syntax or grammar, but it wouldn't make right. much sense. <laughs> so, right. You know, we can communicate. You know, if I were to just say, you know, something like, you know, like in the airtel, if you want to talk like in the airtel, you put your tongue up against your front teeth and you talk like this. The airtel speech would be nasalized, like little kids. You know, mm -hmm. what you can do is look up behind you. There's a lion. So, with with quantal speech and the most high fidelity communication. And, and, and rapid speech with easy, you know, with, with uh, ease of copying. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I say, you know, can you repeat mm-hmm. that? You have trouble. If I say, look up behind you, there's a lion. No problem. You can right that just instantly. Where are we? Where are we at? Um, and then hypersociality. Hypersociality. Okay, you're driving down the highway. Mm-hmm. You see a car. There's a young man, or young lady with a flat tire. What do you do? What's your first instinct? Stop and help. Stop and help out. Yeah. 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 This would be okay. uh, this, this would be explain. Do you try to explain this to a chimpanzee? Like explain calculus to a dog. Right. No. Humans help each other, even strangers. And we help mm-hmm. each other in proportion to the degree we, we, to which we send signals of, of similarity. So, you know, mm-hmm. we used to joke, you know, when I was working in the Middle East in the 1980s, you know, anybody with a Canadian you know, flag on their backpack, that's an American. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a signal. You, know, you wouldn't wear an American flag at that point. You know, it was like mm-hmm. a bullseye. So we, we use our, our, our artifacts to send messages to one another. And to encourage mm-hmm. cooperation, it's, it scales infinite. We, we, we can scale our cooperation between we three who are talking right now all right. the way up to the entire planet. We three were talking about paleoanthropology. Let's say we have a dinosaur killer scale asteroid heading for us. The entire planet is, is focused on that problem and we'll knock that sucker off, off the path and, and survive. Yeah. So that's hyper process sociality. So how. How so? How far back do we think those things go? Like, how many more, how many more Homo species do we go back? Do we still see precision grasping and and uh, bipedal? I mean, they have them all. Okay, all of them. Hyperprosociality. It may be some. It may be something that's uniquely derived among Homo sapiens. The jury's still okay. out. But all the other things. Precision grasping, predictive hallucination, endurance bipedalism, these sorts of things. We have evidence for them among earlier hominids, but we, okay. we don't don't see where those guys, those earlier guys those guys <laughs> integrating them, pull, putting them together, combining them. Oh, okay. What we do really well is we pull them all together at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, okay. And so, so it's it's kind of like you know having a bunch of standalone computers versus a, a local area network. I got or, you. I got you. you know, or Four or five, you know, guys out in the woods by themselves versus, you know, a special forces A team where everybody right. has overlapping skills. Right. Okay. All right. I've got more. So I, I really like the the how versus who is <laughs> that that sent me down a whole path of like, okay, well then how did we make those ancient objects that are so you know precise that you know, we don't have explanations for at this point. But I, I I like the the idea behind that because it, who cares who made the thing like it doesn't in in the but like how do they do that how do you get there really seems to answer you it, it doesn't matter if it was the these guys over here who did it or the that's not what's important what's important yeah. is is how we do it and how we go about about well, making it happen I, I first just <clears throat> as a scientist. You know, and 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 for me as for me as a scientist, arguments about the past have to be have to be capable of being proven wrong. So past mm-hmm. one. What has if you're going to make an argument about the past, you have to tell people how can you prove this wrong. So if I, my colleagues say, well, Neanderthals made these tools, I say, all right, fine. Well, we found a Neanderthal fossil together with the tools. 
Mm-hmm. All that means is that the Neanderthal fossil, you know, this creature died around the same time somebody threw the tools in the same level of the cave. It doesn't mean they made the tools. You know, right. If you find a Neanderthal fossil holding a stone tool in his hand, mm-hmm. doesn't mean the Neanderthal made the, made the stone tool. He might have been, or she might have been walking around and said, hey, look at this weird ass, weird ass stone tool. I'll take it with me. And then, oh, I got, you know, hit by a bolt of lightning or a lion ate me, you mm-hmm. know, something like this. And, and, or, you know, you can't falsify, you can't prove wrong these who questions. Right. But if you say to me, how do they make fire? And I, I say, well, they made fire by, you know, striking marcasite against against a hand axe. Well, okay, let's look at the hand axes. See if right. they're able to detect marcasite, which marcasite is a rock with lots of iron. It basically looks like a turd. So, so <laughs> could, could they discriminate between a, a hard turd and marcasite? And use the strike firewall. Okay, there's mm-hmm. the evidence. Or you know, did they know how to make fire by by you know using a bow drill or, or you know mm-hmm. they had a fire drill? Do we find evidence of, of, of them using rotary movements for anything? Well, we don't. So you know, we find that with humans, but not with Neanderthals. So maybe mm-hmm. that, that's an important difference. The point is how quite you can prove how questions wrong. You can't prove right. who questions wrong unless you have a time machine. Which, which case, let's I work on that. Out of business. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, uh, another thing talking about uh, assuming the consequent. So looking at these different, we, you talk sort of the idea of looking at that, these trivial differences between two different things and, and putting more importance on them than we need to. Um, how, are there things that we're overestimating when we're looking back at this stuff that we're give making that's more important than it? We're we're thinking it's more important than it needs to be. Yeah, one of them is is you know we give names to these fossils. So we give names to you know, some fossils. We assign them to be Neanderthals, mm-hmm. and we assign others to being humans, us okay. Homo sapiens. Now these are differences we. You know, infer from the shapes of skulls and the distribution of the fossils. But on the ground, you know, they, they may have just looked at each other as like those these are those dark skinned guys with funny looking heads, or these these pale guys with with big faces. And, and mm-hmm. you know, it it, it 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 might not. You know, we tend to assume that the differences we see in the fossil and archaeological record are. Like the you know bio, important biological differences or important cultural differences. So these guys made these kinds of stone tools over here. These other guys made these different kinds of stone tools. Oh, they're different people. They have no cultural interactions. That's absolutely, I mm. think, nonsense. You know, nothing, nothing in two hundred years of anthropology suggests or shows that how people made pots or stone tools or any other kind of artifact was a barrier to them meeting each other. Becoming friends, becoming enemies, picking mates from one another, you know. So, so, so we tend to assume that the differences in the fossils and archaeology are profound differences to interaction. When they, they made it trivial, you know. I like to think, you know, I, I, all my my colleagues say, "Well, here's a reconstruction of Neanderthals, and here's a reconstruction of humans." And, oh, they're very different, said, you know. But you know, forty-five thousand years ago, there's probably a bunch of these guys sitting around in a cave. Some of them look more like Neanderthals. Some of them are like look, look more like humans, and they got along with each other. They tell jokes, 
they, they compared stone tools. Hey, you guys make this this way. We make this this way. Wow, isn't that cool? You know, um, we we tend to impose barriers and inflection points on the on the fossil and archaeological evidence unnecessarily. If, if, hmm. if there's really a big difference, it should be it should be obvious. And right, and those differences aren't there. Hmm. I, I, I also got you know. You know, somebody said, "Time machine, John. Forty-five thousand years ago, you're in Western Europe or, or Israel or something like this. What are you seeing? I'm seeing a bunch of Neanderthals and humans sitting around, sitting around the campfire, saying, hey, you know, you guys have been living here. Your Neanderthals have been living here for a quarter million years, or, or since you know your ancestors. What can you teach us?" And the Neanderthals mm -hmm. say to the humans, "Hey, you've got these different kinds of tools and different ways of, of doing things. How can we learn them? You know." This idea, yeah. this ex exclusionary thing, this thing, oh, no, well, you, you make, you, you know, you, you open your egg on the, on the, the narrow side versus the, versus the, the, the wide mm -hmm. side. We can't talk to each other. That's from Jonathan Swift from Gelliver's Travels. You know, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is an artifact of high population densities. When people live on landscapes where there are very few people, everybody's a potential ally. Mm -hmm. You can't afford to exclude people. I mean, imagine you walk into this river, you know, the, the Rhine River or the Rhone River or you're a human. And, you know, this, these guys have been living there for a quarter million years. Oh, yeah. Let's throw spears and, and arrows at them. That's an excellent idea. What could possibly go wrong? Or you, know, you say, hey, you know, let's cooperate. We've got these things we can teach you. You've got stuff we can teach us. You know, I mean, that's my perspective. Yeah. It's changed. I, when I was younger and stupider, I thought, you know, humans just exterminated Neanderthals the minute they set eyes on them. But, you know, mm -hmm. um, well, and age it, doesn't it, necessarily correlate with wisdom, but in this case, maybe I got wiser. And, <laughs> you know, one of the things Daniel and I talk about is, especially when it's hard to prove it, it's like two things can be true at the same time, right? Yes. Um, so maybe a group of them got together and fought because they were just high progressive. And then some of them may have gotten together and, and helped each other out. And and I remember, because I got to read part of the book, but I haven't been able to get through as much of it as Daniel has. Um, and you talk a little bit about the genetic stuff and how, you know, how much we've learned and, and all of that. Yeah. And it fascinates me because I, when I did the DNA test, I found that I'm in like the 95th percentile for having Neanderthal DNA in, in my background. So, which is, which is cool, but... You know, at some point there, there was commingling. At some point, right? What we don't—I I can't tell you what it looked like, but you know, the the you know how for that you just what you just explained makes more sense to me than like say the the them and us book where they they take people and and run off with them and and all yeah. of that. So, um, but I think you you're, you you get people who cooperate when things are hard. Right. Even yeah. if there's, quote unquote, conflict going on, there's been so many stories about, you know, people in a war who get stuck on their own on an island somewhere and they work together. And, you know, it, it, it happens that. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. One of them required you to go read a book. I, I forgot. Honestly, I've forgotten the title of this <laughs> book. Something for the island of, of, of island of something or other where two different um whaling expeditions you know um, crashed on opposite uh -oh. sides of the island and one group it was you know you know everybody 
pulled together and worked together, and uh, uh, I think half or more of them uh, survived to be rescued. The other side of the island, like four or five years later, the, the, the boat crashed. Devil, devil, you know, take the highmost every man for himself, and only one or two of them survived. So, you know, working together, this is hyper pro sociality. You know, working together is, is a huge, you know, you know, force multiplier in human evolution. And I'll give you a practical example of this. When we were in Ethiopia, back about uh, 20, 2001, 2002, we were doing archaeological work in the territory of two different people, the, the, uh, the, the Morsi people and the Nyangatam, different ethnic groups. And the languages are about as different as, say, Chinese and, and Arabic. So, you know, <laughs> they... they and so and the younger time were like those mercy oh they're they're, they're different people you they're bad people and we go to the mercy mercy would say oh the younger time evil oh i can't trust them this kind of stuff and we would regularly have to take our boat from from where we're living in the younger time territory to mercy territory so we send the boat over and and this kind of stuff and and you know hear the stories about you know how awful one or another group were so at some point a bunch of young younger time idiots men decided to do an unauthorized cattle raid to the Morsi. So while we were off there digging, visiting the Morsi people and trying to do some first aid stuff, I, I'm not a doctor, but, you know, I, I know a little bit of malaria and trying to you know, ease people's suffering, this kind of stuff. And we were doing this kind of stuff with the Morsi. These, these a-holes from, from the Nyangatam swooped across the river and tried to do a cattle raid. So we're over in the, in the Morsi territory. We're here. And, 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 we, and, and people getting you know, kind of hinky, you know, something, something's going on. We jump in our boats, go back to the Yagatam territory, and there's gunfire. You know, bullets zipping through the trees, this kind of stuff. And then the, the three shots, you know, bang, bang, bang. It means everybody drop your guns, go to, go to the, 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 the chief's residence, figure out what the F is going on. So we get there. The Yagatams, you know, it, it became clear. The Morsi elders said, you know, you guys try to steal our cattle. The younger time elders said, these were young men. They're stupid. We're going to beat them with sticks in a place where you can see them. So they brought these guys out by the river, hit them with sticks, and said, you ever do this again, we'll effing, you know, end you, this kind of stuff. So we had to have we – we're the foreigners. We said, all right, let's have a peace conference. Everybody gets together. The Mercy elders, the younger time elders, and the, the warriors, they all came together in our camp. So we had like, you know, 40 people and, and 600 machine guns. So we get there, and it's like, you know, we introduce the elders of Morsi, elders of Nagatama. It's like, we don't need, John, you don't, you don't need to introduce them. We know each other. They, they spoke the same language. They, they were married to each other's sisters and brothers. They're, you know, oh, how, how's, how's, you know, you know how, how's Martha doing? Oh, she's great. She's got six <laughs> kids. How about, how about Bertha? Oh, she's got five kids and, you know, this kind of stuff. It's like, what the F is this? You know, and this kind of stuff. You know, it, they, 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 you know, they, 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 we reached an agreement. You know, said, look, as long as these these French, French is is unhard for white people. You know, as long as the French are here, let's just everything, every cool down. They're just picking up rocks and stuff out of the ground. They're crazy. <laughs> we get it, but you know, let's leave them alone. This kind of stuff. And you know, it, it was, it was, it was like we're singing. You guys. Are, 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 according to the Ethiopians, you're at mortal enemies. According to the tourist books, you know, you're shooting each other all the time. We get them, you know, face to face, sitting at our campsite, eating the same goat. And it's like, you know, this, this is bullshit. You know, <laughs> this idea that these guys are mortal enemies. People work things out. 
I, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you though, the, the you know we had the end of the meeting, the chiefs were, were shaking hands, this kind of stuff. Everybody was, you know, high fiving one another and it's kind of stuff. And I, I got my morphing name, Jai Jai, you know. And, and one of the, the Yagatong chiefs was sitting there. He looks over his shoulder and he said um, an expression in Yagatong, like, I, I can't translate it in English because, you know, you don't want to broadcast this. He jumps, <laughs> picks up, you know, gets his, his robe, jumps over the thorn fence around the camp, runs into the bushes, grabs this, you know, six and a half foot tall warrior. You know, yanks the, the the Kalashnikov out of his hand, bitch slaps him upside the head, and it said, you know, and, and, and yells at him and this kind of stuff. He comes back in the camp, sits down, lights a cigarette. And we, we said, "Whiskey Tango Foxtrot was that?" And, and he said, <laughs> well, he 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 borrowed his father's machine gun without authorization. You know, it's like it's, it's just like it's like sitting on the keys to the station wagon, and it's like and my 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 you know the boom the younger Tommy Elder said, "What's the station wagon?" It's like, all right. I, yeah. yeah. How do I explain that? People aren't that yeah. different. You know, the, the point is, you know, we we tend to think as anthropologists, excuse me, we tend to think about differences among humans as categorical differences. Mm-hmm. German and French, Nyangatama and Mercy, white guys and, and, and you know, Africans. You know, whereas you know, on the ground when you you have to solve survival problems, how do you get along? You know, mm-hmm. people find a way. Yeah. Absolutely. We're a lot more clever than we give ourselves credit for. Yes, that's very true. <clears throat> so I w- have you seen um, the new, the footprints that they just found in White Sands, the 23,000? Mm-hmm. 20, so that, that all falls into what you talk about in, yeah. in, the, in that chapter. How do we account for the genetic differences uh, between the Brazil, the ancient Brazilians and the ancient Australians, they've they've seen. There's a. Have you seen this? I I, I know the, about the New Mexico footprints very well. But okay. I'm in New Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh. <laughs> yeah, those are those are pretty fascinating. Okay. I'm I'm excited about those. Yeah. The thing is, we we tend to think about these Pleistocene, excuse me, these earlier hominin population movements. As migrations, as you know, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of people moving at the same time in the same direction. That, that's wrong. To get migrations, you need enormous quantities of storable food. Mm-hmm. Such enormous quantities of storable food are products of agriculture. Now, there may yeah. be some people who manage to do root crops and store them and move from you know, mm-hmm. Southeast Asia to the uh, to near Pacific Islands. But for the most part, the economic basis for migrations are things that have only been uh, available to humans for the last 10,000 years. So okay. what, what happened with the Americas, it wasn't just one movement. This is what geneticists, mm-hmm. you know, they, they call, you know, always you know, well, this, this movement happened 25,000 years ago, this one 12,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. People were moving back and forth. It's like the subway in New York. Okay. People were moving back and forth from, from, from Asia to the Americas, from, from the Americas to Asia. And, the, the the thing is, humans were probably here in the Americas twenty five odd thousand years ago, but there probably weren't very many of them. Okay. It's, it's like mm-hmm. any place, you know, th- th- like there weren't very many Europeans moving into North America in in you know, the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, or there weren't very many Polynesians moving into the Pacific four or five thousand years ago. They're very thin on the ground, and and, and so you know, it, it, you expect it's very difficult to detect them. So what happens is about, about 
10,000 years ago, about 12,000 years ago, people in, in America's ancestral uh, Native Americans started doing, started making very distinctive stone tools. They call it, you know, colis points or, mm -hmm. or colis artifacts. These things are, these things stand out. It, there's, nature does not replicate these things. So what, what happens is that there's a very faint signal before about 12,000 years ago and a very distinctive one afterwards. Now, with, what's probably going on, and this is something we can see in human evolution, members, species of our genus, Homo, disperse really fast. Okay. The, the dates for, the, for Homo erectus in Africa are indistinguishable from the dates for Homo erectus in Southeast Asia. So wherever they originated, oh, wow. they spread really fast. Okay. Dates for Homo habergensis are essentially the same throughout that creature's geographic range, Europe, Africa, and Asia. Okay. Dates for Homo neanderthalensis. You know, we, we can't pinpoint a specific place where Homo where neanderthals emerged. And the same with Homo sapiens, with our species. You know, mm -hmm. it, it basically, it's a tie between Israel, Morocco, and South Africa, and Eastern Africa. So what that means is, is it's not maybe they emerged all these places simultaneously, or they just emerged in one place and spread really, really fast. That's okay. an ancestral characteristic. We move really, humans and our ancestors move really fast. Now, the problem with that is that if you move really fast and spread yourself to the other ground, your children don't have a very wide choice of mates. Mm -hmm. You know, if suddenly Jim has, you know, maybe, you know, one or two people in his, his tribe and, 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 you know, they're both his you know, cousins or sisters or something like that. That's not a good prescription, you know, right. or, 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 you know, young Mary or, or, or Judith or whatever, you know, has, you know, a, a choice of, among, you know, four people. So what, what happens when humans spread out is they have to establish these networks in which they can, you know, find, find potentially wider choices of mates. Mm -hmm. One way to do that is to, 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 is to link people up with distinctive rituals and customs and making distinctive artifacts and this kind of thing. So humans were probably in, came into the New World 25,000 years ago. They moved really fast all the way in, into South America and that sort of thing. At some point, they reached a crisis and, and, and realized, oh, shit, you know, we, we haven't got, we, you know, my, my, our sons and our daughters need a, a wider choice of mates than, than local, mm -hmm. you know, local idiots, you know. Then they started establishing these networks, the Clovis network, or similar sorts of things in the old world. So, yeah, it's it's fascinating. You mentioned the Clovis stuff, and we were lucky enough to talk to um, the gentleman who's now running the Galt site. Are are you familiar with the Galt site mm -hmm. here in Florence, Texas? That's yeah. like halfway between where Daniel and I live, um, and it just I've always been fascinated kind of by our own arrogance when it comes to academia um, yeah. in general, how like we always, are, we know everything, we figured it out. Oh, new thing. Now we know everything and we figured it out. Oh, but now that doesn't, that doesn't line up with my book. So let's not read that book. And, and I, yeah, cause my background's in theology and there's a whole bunch of like, Oh no, no, we're not going to look at those script manuscripts or this or that. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of like this infighting whenever new data comes up. Yeah. Um, but the Galt site was like wide opening. Cause you know, we were talking about it, and I know they've got a lot of stuff they're still sifting through, artifact-wise, that they haven't been yes. able to catalog and, and do that. Yes. But what blew me away, because I've read a lot about it, is when we had him on here, he was talking about the art that they had found, way below yeah. the Clovis stuff. And we're like, art? What art? And it's just, you know. Um, so, and then, you know, growing up, 
Daniels in my generation was like Clovis was the oldest people who ever got here. Right. And, you know, that just like Neanderthal was a caveman. And, you know, um, so it's just this whole field, it seems like we're constantly finding new data. And then I always stop and think to myself, we're only finding what got left and what we can find. Right. What else might be out there, too? I know that's a question we can't really answer. Let's talk about Clovis for a little bit. I mean, Please. Clovis is marked by these, these stone points. They're, they're mm-hmm. about, you know, but you know, five or six inches long. They have a, mm-hmm. a, a very distinctive little, little uh, flake detached from their base. It's really easy to make a mistake making these things. They're very mm-hmm. difficult to make. And, and you know, when you talk to modern craft and hobby stone makers, stone tool makers, they say, look, I made a close point. It's like, you know, it's, it's like having a, you know, a bit of honor. Um, mm. making those things is, could be kind of a performance, a way of saying, you know, look, I've, mm. you know, and it, it's, I, this isn't something from an anthropologist. It's really an idea that came from a filmmaker who made this, this, this movie called the alpha about a boy who domesticates the first wolf. You know, mm-hmm. it, it starts out and they're making these points and the elders say, no, you've done it wrong. This kind of thing. It's not about the point. It's about following directions. Mm. So yeah, you know, if you if you if you try to make a Clovis point and you don't follow directions, you'll fail. It's it's extremely easy to fail. It's really difficult to succeed. Now, if you succeed, you've demonstrated to other people that you can follow directions and you're someone we can trust. Like we're gonna go we're gonna go knock down a mammoth, and we got <laughs> twenty people, and can we trust you? Mm-hmm. Oh, right. If we can we trust you, here's your proof of concept. Make a Clovis, make a point. So, here's the deal: if you, if, if you know, early humans were scattered all over the New World, all over the Americas, and then this this custom arose and said, "Well, here's a way of making your your your, your bones," as, as El Mafia would say. Here's a way of, of establishing your bona fides as someone who who can follow complex directions. Then we're willing to accept you. We'll take you in our group. That lowers the threshold. It says, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to go knock down a mammoth, and we trust you. Don't betray us. Instantly, when, when people start making those points, the big mammals and mammoths, and, you know, mastodons and ground sloths, the horses, horses, things, they just vanish like that. It's, you know, because you now have a, 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 a symbolic and social and pro-social way of encouraging people to work together. You go after you know animals. You, know, you and me, we three with spears against a mammoth. We're toast. Mm-hmm. We, we, they, mm-hmm. they kick us in the low Earth orbit. Thirty or forty of us, well, have all you know shown that we can cooperate. Shown we can follow directions. You flank this creature. You distract it. You go in for the kill shot. This kind of thing. That that that. Um, that in, in, enables activities that would be with high risks and, and high returns that would previously be difficult. You know, it, 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 it's not just speculation. There's something like this that happened in the 19th century. It's called the ghost dance. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think Arapaho, Shoshone, I've forgotten, uh, a, a prophet Assume. named Walker, who, 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 who had initiated this dance. Mm-hmm. And the dance was to bring together, you know, Lakota, Dakota, Shoshone, mm-hmm. Arapaho, and the Plains tribes. It was a complex dance. You really had, you had to study this. And they're really secretive about this. Maybe one little video, I think Edison filmed, of the ghost dance. 
But this was, you know, it pulled together people who were formerly separated. The, the federal government in the United States separated Arapaho over here, Shoshone over here, mm -hmm. Lakota over here, Dakota over here, you know, kind of separate them. But and, and it scared the shit out of them. You know, the, the, the federal government just they suppressed this because they're afraid these guys will get their act together and not mm -hmm. knock the federals off the planes. You know, this is, you know, so Clovis and this kind of thing, it's not the first people. It's, it's, it's a way of pulling together people who mm -hmm. are formerly so distributed they couldn't find mates. And look, you know, it, I, I tell my students, if you want to explain prehistory, you got to explain what matters. If it doesn't influence reproductive success, it's irrelevant. Evolution is about reproductive success. You know, no, fine art, this kind of stuff, yes. How does it influence reproductive success? If not at all, then it, it, it's, it's, you know, mm -hmm. irrelevant. As, as far as the, the – we talk about disperse, dispersion and all that. How did we get it so wrong? Like, we – where did the assumption of migration come from and how did we start at that assumption? And even though that's not right, like what was the error? Do we know? History. History. Okay. Simple, simple history. I mean, I mean, if you look at a history of, of Europe, history of, of you know, East, history of Africa, and the last several thousand years, it's been this group, this named group of people from this region, you know, pick up all their goats, cattle, sheep, and whatever, okay. and, and move to this other region. So migrations are familiar things. And so you know, it, it, when we look back in the past, we say, all right, well, you know, maybe past processes were, were just like the present. We, mm -hmm. we don't often give enough scrutiny to what, what under under uh, underwrites those, those, those movements. Now, I, I tell right. my students this. Look, you know, I'm from Massachusetts. My, my people have been there for centuries where the pilgrims came and I'm not defending the pilgrims, but when the pilgrims came to Massachusetts Bay. They had members of a, a, a small Protestant religious sect. One group. That's, that's my people. Sorry. Mine about too. That. Yeah. yeah. No, don't be sorry. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the Mayflower compact, the compact was, you know, the basis for, you know, for, for much of the mm -hmm. later human you know, American uh, law. Okay. Look, they came. They were the members of the of the, the, the pilgrim sect. Mm -hmm. There were strangers, these other, mm -hmm. other guys who weren't members of the sect who came off to seek their fortunes. There were sailors who were there for the season who brought these mm -hmm. people over and said, "All right, good luck, have fun with the up and log people. Mm -hmm. We're out." So you had three groups of people. You know, one they were migrating, the members mm -hmm. of the, the, the pilgrim sect. Others, they were dispersing. They were seeking their fortunes. That third group, mm. they were there for the season and said, all right, right I'm fine. We're going back to England and, and, and the next boat is to what Gibraltar or, or Africa or what have you. Right. Here's the deal. All those things can occur simultaneously today. Right. The only one that occurs today that could not have occurred during the Ice Age is migration. Ice Age people didn't have the means by which to create the enormous stores of food, stored energy, right. that they would need to subsist on as they moved and in their destinations. Do you know the first military action by Europeans against Europeans in North America was by the, P the Plymouth Pilgrims against those strangers who had gone up and, and said, you know, F you clowns, 
we're going to go live with in Wapanoix in Massachusetts. And, 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 and went off and formed a little colony called Marymount. It's, I think, Weymouth in Massachusetts. They, mm-hmm. they formed this little community. The pilgrims lost their minds and, and went out and, and, and captured these guys and shipped them back to England. So prehistoric human population movements were probably a mixture of all those things, of individuals dispersing when the economic means by which to, to, um, to migrate were possible, they migrated, as well mm-hmm. as people moving along to assist this sort of thing, guides, you know, mm-hmm. um, people. You know, who, who people like who led um, American and European Americans across the plains and into the Rockies, right? Like Kit Carson, right. for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. Okay. So the clo- you, we can talk about is the Clovis point the like the most complicated one? Like, is it like the pinnacle of of stone points? Is that why it's so significant? It's Extremely difficult. They are extremely difficult to make. And it's really okay. easy to mess up. Okay. Uh, okay. There, there are like, also. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's sort of like throwing daggers at a person in a magic show. You mess it up, and people oh. remember. Okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> well, they're also very efficient when you get down to like the, the arrowhead, as far as a hunting tool, and, and at least as as I've seen. Like a broadhead versus a some yeah. of the more primitive ones, yeah. um, it, but you're you're right; they're not easy to make. I've yeah. seen people try to make them, and I've seen masters who can like knock out that kind of shape super fast. And with, yeah. it, it's it's amazing to watch somebody do somebody do that. It, it, it's funny. There's, there are a couple of tricks. I can't tell you because they have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's a few tricks that make it a lot easier than others, and 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 you know this is like I said, it's like, almost like a magic show. Mm-hmm. You know, a card trick or you know another rabbit out of the hat because it's that's it's horrible. But but you know, um, misdirection. You know, mm-hmm. I have a, a young colleague named Metin Aaron from Kent State University who is a very good stone worker. He's far, vastly more talented than I am, and he's really good at this stuff. And he's he actually has said, you know, it's like magic. It's like magic tricks. You know, you 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 you. you it's part of the, per, the performance. So I I think there's something there. There. Mm-hmm. This is a, 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 something you do to establish your bona fides as a member of a group. And it's not unique. There are other in, in other parts of the world in Europe. About you know, eighteen twenty odd thousand years ago, they say uh, archaeologists call it the the Solutrean culture. Where they mm. made very long, narrow, and thin um, stone tools by percussion, and you look at these things and you think, "Wow, they're, they're not." You know, there are even crazier ways of making stone tools, but it's really easy to mess these things up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think what's probably going is something similar. Eighteen to twenty thousand years ago in Europe was a time when it was, it was just insane cold. There were very few people, and so again. You know, the, the main problem isn't like, geez, how do we make stone tools? You bang two rocks together. You know, the main problem is, is, is you know, my son, our daughter, they need a husband or a wife, as the case may be. Mm-hmm. How do we make sure that it's a, we have a good son-in-law or a good daughter-in-law? We test, we test them by saying, can you follow directions? So mm-hmm. here, here's the tool. This is how we make it. Try to make it. 
you know, and, and you know, it's just not like you know, like, like you know, medieval things with you know the three princes and, and the contest. Mm -hmm. But you know, they might say, "Yeah, okay, Bob, Bob, he's okay. He does a good job." But Joe, Joe's really good. Joe can can make it just like grandfather does. And you know, Tim, Tim, I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Tim, Tim, not our kind, dear. <laughs> so you. You mentioned at one point that that we find evidence of like practice pieces. I, I don't remember. Oh yes. So do we see similar stuff like busted Clovis points where someone was on their way and they they screwed it up? Or do we find yes. lots of evidence? Okay, okay. Uh, all, all the right. time, all the time. <clears throat> we find this from all t all periods of of, of, of prehistory. It, it's more obvious in recent time periods because in more recent time periods people spend more time making stone tools, but you know mm. even even the oldest stone tools you see people you know people made mistakes they hit a, the rock the rock fractured the wrong way they kept hitting it's like you know dope this kind of stuff yeah um it, it, it as, as stone working methods get more complex in more recent time periods it gets easier to excuse me it gets easier to detect mistakes so i don't know some element maybe some element of performance of it Mm -hmm. It also may just be that the stone making, stone tool making techniques are more complicated and even more complicated, more room for error. Yeah, absolutely. I, t I tell you, you know, the stone tools we found with, with the guy from Homo Kibish, the oldest Homo sapiens fossils, mm -hmm. you know, they were making, uh, we, 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 Richard Leakey found the fossils back in the 1960s. We went back in the 2000s and, and found the archaeology along with the fossils. Mm -hmm. They were making stone tools that were the size of, you know, like a, a quarter. And as you know, I looked at these things and I thought, holy cow, these guys were, were good at making stone tools. It's, it's easy to make big stone tools, basically, you know, one big boulder, mm -hmm. another big boulder, this kind of thing. These guys are making stone tools, you know, about the size of a, of a marble. In, in very precise kind of ways. But hmm. all my colleagues would say, well, these are archaic humans. These are primitive humans. They're not quite like us. This kind of stuff. And I thought, yeah, right. Make one of these tools. I dare you. Yeah, so, absolutely. Early humans, we, we underestimate them. You know, this is a great video, you guys. Um, it's uh, um, Geico Caveman History Channel Docent. It's got that those Geico caveman. One of mm -hmm. his characters is you know, for History Channel. He's a, a museum docent, and he describes about these these you know, you know, Cro-Magnons, Ice Age mm -hmm. humans, and you know, they invented clothing and agriculture, all the rest of this stuff. It, it's like that is what these guys would be like if you could bring them back back today. They were they were smart. Yeah, but, it, it it seems like you'd have to be. I mean, if it's you know, they're there's no participation trophy. You either make it or you don't. And we're the result of millions and millions of generations of the guy who made it, yeah. you know, and, and well, it feels cheapening to try to make it. Well, they were just, they were some, you know, no, they were, they were making it and it was insane back then. Well, evolution does have a participation trophy. It's <laughs> extinction. Yes. <laughs> It's 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 no prize for second best, right? You know, so uh, 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 we we're so different from the, these circumstances in which our ancestors evolved. 
and the challenges they faced and the survival difficulties they overcame. We forget about them. You know, I, I, I also got, you know, 40 some odd years ago when I was an undergraduate student, I remember asking old Professor Gable, I said, how do they make fire? And it was like, well, somehow, you know, <laughs> silence, or, or they didn't answer the question. You know, silence and somehow aren't answers. Yeah. We can answer this question. Look, if we can understand, you know, the, uh, muons and gluons and cleons or whatever the hell, you know, some <laughs> atomic particles relate to each other, we can figure out how people made fire half a million years ago. We just yeah. have to you know, cowboy the hell up and, and <laughs> you know, ask the question and recognize, you know, you know we, it's not easy. It's going to be difficult, but, you know, mm -hmm. who becomes an anthropologist to answer easy questions? Yeah. And it's an important question. It's it's also, it, it's fascinating because there's something that happens when you try it and it works. Like yes. the, the make, because I, I have on my YouTube channel, now granted I was using somewhat more modern stuff, yeah. but it was, it was the catch a spark on a piece of yeah. charred material, blow it into flame, and I, it is still one of the, the first time I did it is still like one of the most vivid memories of, it's hard to explain. It's, it felt very primal, very like powerful and, and, and in a yeah. way that a lot of other things don't. And yeah. I, I just, I, it's hard to describe to someone who's never done it. Um, yeah. Well, well, I, well, back, I did Cody London's um, Desert Drifter course. Mm -hmm. um, from the Aboriginal Living Skills School of Prescott, Arizona. And it, it was a, a mixed group. You know, um, I, like I said, there's one guy who was an ex-Marine, another, a kid who, it was his parents ran a gold mine. A bunch of people were CEOs of software companies. And, you know, it, it was, you know, just accomplishing basic stuff. Like when we, we all sat around and made fire, friction mm -hmm. fire, by you know, bow drill, mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. You know, it was, for some of them, it was like, I mean, I, I'd done this stuff before. It was fun. It was cool. And I, you know, but some of these guys, it was just like, it, it rocked their world. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were not the same person that, you know, that afternoon as they were that morning. Yeah. And, you, know, it, 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 you know, getting in touch with those ancestral skills is, is, is it's a really important thing. I, I wish there were more opportunities for people to do this. There, yeah. there's there's definitely something to that i the fir the first time bill took me hunting got got a deer we processed oh. it i decided i was i was gonna take i took it all home myself i i i, I did the whole thing and i cooked it and then i ate it and then there's that Good. moment when you eat it and you go oh i get it now like okay mm -hmm. i understand there's a thing to this and there's something behind being like i i did this and you're like yes. oh, okay i understand now like it's and, and, a and, different thing there's another part that just drives me nuts whenever I'm talking to somebody who's never done anything outdoors except look at it, where they're like, well, you just you just go out and kill a deer. I'm like, that's <laughs> yeah. not easy. Even yeah. if I give you a rifle and a scope and bullets, it's still not easy. You There, there are skills involved. And they're like, what are you talking about? You just go shoot the deer. I'm like, yeah, this is... It's and, not a video game. And, and honestly, white-tailed deer in Texas are kind of dumb, and they're all over the place. And it's yeah. still not easy to do. Yeah. And also, still, there's also the emotional component. Mm -hmm. You're taking a life. Mm -hmm. Well, you... it's more the assumption that, oh, it's not going to be that hard. And it's just like, you know, even getting into the, 
yes, it, there's, you know, I, I grew up with hunting. It's just a part of nat the natural order of life for me. And, uh, mm -hmm. but there, there are things again that are very primal in it. And I don't know. It's just people think it was easy. They look yeah. back on it and they're like, it was, you know, hunting's easy. Fishing's easy. No, it's not. Try and do it. No, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, people think that these things are easy because we all have a lot of technology between us and them. You mm -hmm. know, um, I don't hunt. And it's not that I can't. I'm um, a very good marksman. Mm -hmm. I'm NRA certified or something like this. I got some award for marksmanship. <laughs> now, um, I don't hunt because I don't need to. Mm -hmm. And I don't hunt because you know, because you know, I I I don't think killing things for recreation is 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 it's not me. I, mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I other people feel differently. That's fine. That's them. I'm me. But you know, understanding the the connection between you know mm -hmm. what you do and its, its consequences is important. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I you know I, I teach my students and you know, <laughs> I was the guy. I think I think you know. You know, you know, steak comes from trees. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> or today, I was saying, you know, you know literally today, is it, if you're in trouble and you had a signal, what would you do? You know, cell phone. So what, what if the cell phone service is out? Uh, I don't know what to do. I said, well, okay, today we're going to learn about rescue whistles and, and, you know, signaling to aircraft using a mirror. So it was, you know, it's like a little magic trick at the end of the class. But, you know... <laughs> It, it, I, I wish my colleagues and other paleoanthropologists would ask these kinds of questions. How do they? How do people solve these problems? How do they overcome them? Because I, I, you know, and, and again, you know, it's not that we can't answer the questions; it's that we don't ask ask the questions and insist that there be answers. Yeah. If we, if we say, okay, how do people? Why do people domesticate cows or dogs or pigs or whatever? You know, there's all kinds of you know, literally. Thousands of papers about that. Why do people build cities? Thousands, thousands of papers about about that. Why do people begin global trading work? Again, thousands, thousands of papers about that. How do people make fire? Silence. Yeah, it, without fire, we're just another monkey. Yeah. So correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm hoping that I'm noticing a newer trend um, in the experimental archaeology. It feels like I'm seeing more and more. Not necessarily academics. Some of them are people mm -hmm. asking these kind of questions. And there, yes. I remember I watched the show very recently where someone was like, Stonehenge, we think we know when it was built. We think we know what the boat was like at the time. Mm -hmm. Can we build one as close to how they did it then? And it may have been Nova or somebody like that who, who put the show mm -hmm. on. But it was, can we take it and get it there? And it was just fascinating to watch them trying to figure out how you know, how could they have lifted the stone? How would they have done this? And it feels like there's more, at least at mm -hmm. the amateur level, experimental archaeology going on. Um, yeah. And I'm catching a lot of it on YouTube. People like Daniel and I who are like, how do we do this? I don't know. Let's go out and try and do it and see what yeah. happened. It may not have been the exact way, oh. but it's a way, right? Yeah. Um, experimental archaeology has um, gone through some changes. Early on, it was just you know unstructured. Somebody would you know say, I, I you know I can bank two rocks together. You know, I'll go out in my backyard and butcher a deer. 
this is how people butcher deer, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It, it's gotten more sophisticated. And it, it, it's due to you know, younger scholars, guys who are in their 20s and 30s, who've really you know, embraced the scientific method and said, if I, can't, if, if, if I can't prove this wrong, it's not science. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, things, things like, like, you know, the, the, the reconstructing the Stonehenge triathlons, building a, a replica of a pyramid, they're fine, they're entertainment, they, and, and they're inspiration for hypotheses. But the, the bottom line is, is, if it's science, you have to be able to prove it wrong. Yeah, I love this stuff. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've always do this, these kinds of things. My, I call them my sons, you know, my, my former students and, and, and younger younger colleagues who, of, who I've been, uh, and daughters, but influence. But the bottom line is, can you prove it wrong? But, yeah. I mean, I, 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 the one I love, you know, is the, 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 the statues in Rapa Nui on Easter Island. You know, mm-hmm. the, you know, the Europeans came and said, how do these statues get there? They walked. And then, you know, what experimental archaeologists showed is that if you tied ropes around them and pulled in different directions, they, they moved back and forth, back and forth like they're walking. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Can't prove it wrong. I mean. Yeah. 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 Do it. Let me, let's see. Let's see it happen. Well, with experimental archaeology too, and I deal with earlier time ranges. My my mm-hmm. colleagues, you know, are like, well, humans just just chase carnivores away from large mammal death sites and scavenge remains. It's like, okay, that's nice. Yeah, Have you ever been to Eastern Africa, <laughs> around the death site like at Cape Buffalo, and tried to get near it? First, you have to get through the vultures, and then you have to get through the lions. After that, there's the, there's the hyenas, and when the hyenas are done, there's the jackals and other things. So, if, do 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 please show me how these early humans, you know, specialized on exploiting large animal death sites. They probably mm-hmm. did. These guys are smart and they're tough, but you know, just this assumption that the, well, they solved it somehow, or you yeah. know, the answer to your question is silence. That's not science. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was spectacularly interesting. Tell me, your, your book is great. Uh, the you. Unstoppable yes. Human Species. The 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 footnotes are hilarious. Right? Not all of them, but a lot of them are. Okay. I was reading through, just going, ah, that's that's funny, you know. But as for Beatrice, it's like you know. <laughs> <laughs> do do you have a publication date yet? Do you know when it's going to be out? Oh, it's been out since March. Oh, it's been oh, out okay. Since March. oh okay, okay, okay. Excellent. Perfect. The next uh, one will be um, Surviving Prehistory, in which I, I take all the all the stuff I've been learning in survival archaeology, uh, survival classes, and you know, try to answer questions about how people solve different difficulties. Mm-hmm.